<clears throat> so just checking the sound, I'm on a different computer. Great, thank you. <clears throat> the Buddha said, nothing whatsoever should be clung to. And then he added, one who has heard this has heard everything. One who has practiced this has practiced everything. One who has realized this has realized everything. This points to the simplicity of the practice. See what's here and don't cling to it. He also said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering and the Eightfold Path, the Seven Factors of Awakening, Five Hindrances, Five Aggregates, Six Sense Bases, Four Noble Truths, which begs the question, why did he give all those other teachings? If I were to summarize the 12 steps of liberative dependent arising, I could easily say nothing whatsoever should be clung to. But it seems it's the nature of the human mind to complicate things and to confuse them. We tend to see things through the bias of what we know. They call that the law of the hammer. If the only tool you have is a hammer, we tend to treat everything as if it were a nail. We tend to view the world through the lens of what we know. Take a college party with lots of drinking and drugs. A doctor would look at the party and may be concerned about the effect of too much drinking and sexually transmitted diseases. The person throwing the party might be concerned with the party being a success. A police officer may view the party as disruptive to the neighbors and take issue with underage drinking and legal drugs. But maybe for an anthropologist of the future studying college parties, we'd see the larger overview and see all the different perspectives. And since we tend to see things through the bias of what we know, it seems most of us know how to cling really well. We're experts. And we have the conditioned tendency to see the world through our desires and aversions, through our clinging. If I was looking to buy a car, a particular car, suddenly I'd notice it everywhere. So when we first sit down with the unsettled mind, what's most obvious to us usually is the very loud, I want that or I don't want that, or some version of that. Maybe. I don't want that, so I'll take a nap into sloth and torpor. Or I'll take a vacation into fantasy. And all this activity makes quite a racket. 
So we're not able to hear the quieter, peaceful voice of our inner Buddha saying, nothing whatsoever should be clung to. This path of awakening we're on is a path that goes radically against the stream, against the current of our habits and conditioning. I see the practices of the path, the intellectual understandings, the Dharma, the many lists as the poetry of the path. And like poetry, It inspires us to see outside of the bias of what we know. We become our own anthropologists, seeing ourselves from a wider perspective, a perspective which allows us to see through the clouds of our likes and dislikes. If it's looking at the unsettled mind, through the eyes of practicing with the five hindrances or through the eyes of the factors of awakening or any other teachings, the instructions are still the same. See what's here and don't cling. And in these 12 steps of liberative dependent arising, our first step, is a choice. We see dukkha in the moment, and though we may have momentum to continue in the cycle of suffering, we have just enough space to see the choice towards the path to not cling. And each time we make that choice, our confidence grows, and the momentum towards the cycle of suffering gets weaker. And we may bask in the delight of being on the path and then delight turns to joy. Or maybe one of the hindrances creeps up again to the surface, wanting. And we can make the choice again to meet the hindrance with wholesomeness Why add suffering to suffering? And in this persistent way, time and time again, turning to the path, strengthening our ability to let go, cultivating wholesome mental qualities as we walk the path and weakening the momentum of the cycle of dukkha. And the heart easily goes from the light to joy, to tranquility, to happiness, to the sublime state of samadhi, which gives us the clarity to see things as they really are. And when we do, and we see with the eyes of wisdom, we naturally become disenchanted with the delusions in our lives. And a peaceful dispassion develops in us, making it easy to let go of the parts of our lives, the ways that aren't helpful for us. 
the tendency to cling, thinning and thinning, fading away, or letting go gradually becomes the natural momentum of the mind, weakening the power of the cycle of dukkha until we let go enough that the chain to our desires and aversions becomes so thin it breaks and falls away to freedom, to liberation. And something fundamental changes in us. And then we celebrate with knowledge of our freedom but with the clear eyes of what work is still to be done, what remains. And the work to be done, it isn't a problem at all, just more fertilizer for our Dharma tree. Thank you. Thank you, Ines, very much. And um, so it's, uh, you know, we haven't had any chance for public questions and answers. We've had the small practice discussion groups, but here we are as a whole community. And I don't mean to put pressure on you to speak it up, but it is kind of something to celebrate, something to enjoy time together. And it might be nice to hear some uh, Dharma questions, <clears throat> practice questions. Uh, uh, and um, so if you have anything, um, please. And so, uh, Yaisha. Thank you, Gail. And thank you, Ines. Um, today I had Two experiences while uh, meditating, two un unpleasant ex experiences of attachment, clinging came, <clears throat> and both were both were difficult in the sense that I could see I could see the experience fading. I, I could first see the experience kind of clinging more when I saw it. And the first one, when I felt the experience fading, I felt very, my body felt very, very tired, um, <clears throat> as if I had low energy. I don't know if that clinging to that was taking energy from me. Um, and I did recline a bit. I didn't go to sleep, but I did lie down for a little bit after that. And the second one, it, it took a long time to be able to let it go, or at least I was trying until I kind of felt that I couldn't, and I was just trying to be kind to myself. And when I felt it, when I, I had to do very deep layers and layers of, of clinging, um, and then on, another, another layer of clinging to clinging, and it was kind of complicated to to see and <clears throat> start seeing it fading. And when it did, it felt like the, when the energy was dissipating, I felt my stomach felt sick. As if the energy was dissipating, but something 
in my body had was feeling like when the energy dissipated was it was a feeling of physical sickness like my my stomach felt physically sick and i wonder if that's like when you're detoxing your body from something that you were eating that's toxic you still feel funny or sick when you're detoxing it i don't know if i'm explaining myself very well so i just i was yeah i was just was wondering about it because it was it was new to me to feel yeah. that yeah both both your uh, explanation ideas for what you were what is happening makes sense to me uh, clinging can be exhausting and uh, but somehow the sometimes the energy of clinging the drive, the desire for it overrides our tiredness even. And so, and some people cling, <clears throat> as soon as they let go of one clinging, they go on to the next clinging. And so the energy is there and they don't realize how, how weary and tired their whole system is getting. So in retreat where you really stop and are here, you might notice how, how deeply tired we can be. And sleep is good then to recover. And yes, sometimes these clingings we have are deeply connected to our emotional life. Or, and, um, and so some of that's quite difficult and painful. And as it gets released, um, it can have all kinds of physiological effects like you know, upset, upset stomach. And, um, but generally, just uh, uh, take it as a good sign. You know, it's, a, it's part of the cleansing. So... So thank thank you. I loved your dedication to do the process. It was really wonderful to hear. It was very unpleasant, but I knew something had to be on the other side. So yeah. I, I felt a much inspiration from see, seeing the Sangha sitting. Um, so that inspired me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Diane? So then... So then uh, we're going to try to alternate between who answers. And did you see someone uh, hand? Yeah. Uh, I think Kumi is first. Oh, okay. Oh, I see. It goes that way. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Kumi. Hi. Hi, Ines. Thank you, Gil. Hi, everybody. <laughs> uh, you know, earlier, Gil, you said um, uh, the the practice body, maybe not physical body. And I'm just getting, like I was saying, happy birthday to myself, discovering my body because Ines did a, she said, stay close to body. And I'm discovering a whole level, whole world of being in touch with my feelings, just beginning at my age to really, um, experience what it is to you know to uh, my body <laughs> and the connection just an it's just a whole world of questions and when you said maybe not physical body but practice body it just really <laughs> i just didn't know what you meant so i guess it's for me then you want, you want to try Inez, back and forth or should i respond uh, it, I'm I'm fine. I can try. We can try, but um, well, that was that was to okay, him. Go though. ahead, Gil. He's You're the, the one, one who said it. Yeah. <laughs> You're responsible for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, the, the physical mean, body, the practice body, the practice body is the physical body we experience when we're practicing. 
So it's not the, not the same as our, you know, our corpse. It's not the same as what a doctor would, you know, be interested in, because it's only through our uh, senses, our inner way of experiencing ourselves, and it shifts depending how we feel. If we're happy, the happy body feels different than the sad body. And so the practice body is the body that's affected by the practice, the body that's calm or focused or joyful or, or unified. And so we get a whole different feeling of the body. And so many people identify with their physical body so strongly that it's more like an idea they have. But part of what we do in practice is we enter the body and feel it from the inside. And that feeling of the body shifts and changes depending on how concentrated we get. Yeah, I was thinking about the direct experience, you know, direct, yeah, something about direct experience. And uh, yeah, to me, this is the whole thing is practice. And so there was no separation between, you know, I mean, body or practice or physical body. It was all one to me, Great. just one nature. Very nice. I hope this isn't recorded because I didn't quite hear all of it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Is it being recorded? I think so. <laughs> uh, Diane. So in the last sit, it occurred to me that um, some Vega spiritual longing it reminded me a lot of um food craving <laughs> and and escaping and um because it was coming from fear and um and i found that confusing um, um it's like being at a buffet and or you know this yummy dessert and you're not even done with it but you want more and it's like i haven't really digested this retreat and i'm planning the next one um it, it's the kind of uh it's not being here right so you know the the spiritual longing you know sometimes we have what we call mixed intentions and yeah. there's a very wholesome uh movement the movement away from dukkha is a really wholesome movement uh planning the retreat while you're still on this one that's a little bit of clinging. <laughs> uh, it can be. Um, so it's just honoring, you know, that, yeah, this is how we are right now. This is what's happening right now. I have a little bit of this clinging to it, uh, but I also have something that in me that's really connected, uh, that there's a possibility out of this dukkha. So they're both there. Okay. Mixed. Mixed is good. Thank you. Yeah, Leo. Um, yes, I've got a theoretical question. Um, and in this retreat, we've been talking a lot about um, samadhi and for the purpose of um, seeing inconstancy and not clinging, et cetera. And I'm, I'm thinking, I'm kind of confused when, then when I think about more... Um, like open awareness practice, as um, as I understand, uh, Saito Utejaniya teaches, and 
it's there's not a focus on samadhi there's a, a not even so much as i i could be wrong in my understanding but or the, there's not even the focus on the body so much the focus is really on the mind but the intention is still of course to lead to liberation and can you compare and contrast or talk a little bit about those differences I don't know if I'm really qualified to say a lot about Utijaniya's practice, so I feel a little, a little reluctant to say too much. But, um, you know, there's many different forms of vipassana. Uh, and uh, if you look at uh, Jack Kornfield's book that was originally called um, Living Buddhist Masters, but now it's called, it's called some like Living Dharma because most of them died, is... Um, uh, the, the, the range of vipassana practices and how people practice vipassana is so great, so varied. And if you add to that all the different practices of Theravada Buddhism, all, all of which are supposed to have the same goal in mind, you know, liberation, uh, you see there's so many doors, so many ways to practice. And, um, and exactly, you know, so, some of them uh, go through uh, uh, very clear specific stages of practice, uh, like the stages of insight. And some don't use the stages of insight. They don't experience that because they, there's another path for them. Um, so I don't know all about the path that Utejaniya uses, but I do know that some of the people I talk to who do that practice uh, find that by doing open awareness practice, they get concentrated. Uh, but it's not, it's not through having a single one-pointed focus, but rather it's closer to what in uh, something called momentary concentration, which is um, you're not focusing, uh, sustaining attention on, on one object, but you're sustaining present moment attention to the changing objects of the moment. And, um, and so, but whatever, whatever practice you're doing, um, uh, I think all practices share that in order for insight or, or mindfulness to really have its penetrating nature, there has to be some level of concentration. But how you get there might be very different. Okay, thank you. Sometimes uh, in the, uh, the, the level of concentration that is required comes through listening to a Dharma talk, like if the Buddha is teaching, for example. And, uh, and, uh, and that's where the concentration comes. And then sometimes uh, teaching the Buddha, uh, he says something into that concentrated mind and something can let go. So there's many ways. Thank you. And then for those of you who don't know about how to raise your uh, Zoom hand, there's a, on the bottom of your screen, there should be a menu on the far right that says reactions. And so you can have a reaction by clicking on there. And uh, then you see the option for uh, raising your hand. Lydia. Hi, Ness. Hi. Um, the Dharmat it just offered just now. Um, you were mentioned something about this um, dukkha circle, dukkha cycle. 
I assume you're talking about the, the first cycle of the 12 steps. It's called, um, you know, start with the ignorance and yeah. and. So I was trying to think comparing with these two cycles. Seems like the, the first cycle you're talking about that dukkha, it's more closely connected to each other of each factor. So namely like if I don't do anything for one stage, then we'll default to the following one. We'll default to the following one until, you know, I keep on going that circle. I thought, well, I need to break out of this. Then I start have this intention, pay attention to it. Then anywhere of this cycle, I can break out, you know, use the analogy that Gail gave earlier about this, like a highway, you know, um, for this, dependent origination cycle is like a looped highway. It just keep on going, looping and looping, looping until I pay attention I can find the exit to take exit, get out of it. And you said something, another thing is if we practice that way, then um, we're getting better, better to find that exit or, or to exit faster. Then um, that's inspiring. Then when we learned about this um, liberative uh, or, uh, dependent origination, and it's, it's like you find one on-ramp of this dukkha, then I can get on this huge highway of 11 lanes that is so encouraging, but I was thinking, how come, you know, naturally I want to stay on that, right? But somehow I, somehow I got off the highway. You know, I just taste a little bit, then and I'm off. Then I have to find the dukkha to, you know, understand it, not find it. I know I have it to understand it in order to get on that highway again. So I'm just thinking when I practice with these two loops, I really need to pay attention to the first loop, like Dukkha loop, how to get out of it. But that Dukkha loop has so, such a strong magnetic center. I'm just a piece of metal, keep <laughs> on sucking me in. <laughs> You know, so until I get demagnetized, maybe someday. And, you know, I was just trying to think, how do I practice in these two circles? It's, it's very, it's actually really simple. Every time you notice you don't, you're, you don't have ease in you, that's dukkha, take a look. Anytime you're not at ease, anytime you're not relaxed. So just take a look and you're already there. The moment you take a look and you say, okay, I'm willing to look, I'm willing to see what showed up, you're starting the, the liberative side. Ah. 
The, the other thing I could add to that is that it's not the only on-ramp. There's another on-ramp, and that's the on-ramp of virtue, of sila, of really refining um, or, or, uh, or, or hearts that way, uh, of, of wise action, of wise speech, um, including wise speech to ourselves. So there's, there's, you know, different ways, you know, kindness, kindness goes a long way to, um, to getting us on that highway. Great. So any of this and a full path practice can be the on ramp to bring us up there. Great. Thank you. And then uh, Iona. Fear. <laughs> um, I, I have a, it's not really a practice question, um, but I, I had an experience with a sort of informal teacher that was um, very, I, I actually asked Inez about this at another time and I wanted to see Gil what you could, what light you could lend on this subject, um, who treated me very badly um, and was purportedly um, somebody who had attained at least first path. And then, you know, we've heard about teachers who have also acted badly. Um, and I just, that this particular person was um, pretty isolated, like not, didn't have a, a fam, a partner or family. And um, so there were no, you know, real outer constraints or excuse me, outer pressures on feedback loops for him. So I, I just was wondering if you could discuss in a larger, or if you've written anything about how this happens among people who have partially attained um, liberation, but still can act in very um, unskillful ways. Yeah. Well, some of you explained isolation is uh, often considered a, a, a dangerous thing for a teacher. The, um, you know, I think that maybe we have too high of expectation of what enlightenment does to people. Uh, they, at least in the Theravadan world, the, the, or in, there's a classic idea that uh, the first uh, reaching, the first kind of experience of awakening or realization of something, um, I, that's actually when your practice begins. And everything else is has been preparatory. So it's, I don't want to mean to discourage anyone, but um, but it's all preparatory. So if uh, if a person stops practicing because they have reached that you know first kind of experience of freedom, um, you know they actually haven't gotten that far. They have to really keep practicing. And also, um, the first experience is mostly a cognitive cognitive shift. It's a shift in understanding. And, uh, but the emotional basis for our clinging hasn't really been dealt with yet very much. Hasn't, there hasn't been a radical change. And, but sometimes because the cognitive shift has changed so much, 
is it kind of sometimes is clear in people's inhibitions. And, um, and but, but the emotional stuff is still there and, and that maybe hasn't been really dealt with properly. And so sometimes, yeah, they've had some experience of freedom, but um, you know, they're not, they're not uh, air or free. They're not, you know, this is, there's more work, more practice to be done. Thank you, Gil. Thank you. So the, uh, the Buddha, when he, um, one of the wonderful teachings from the Buddha is that you should check out a teacher and you should spend actually a lot of time just kind of really checking a teacher out to see whether there's, uh, you can perceive uh, any greed, hatred or delusion that might skew how they teach. But it's up to you, so, so that, you know, it's sometimes hard to read teachers, but uh, the idea is to really check them out and wait before you and, you know, you kind of begin trusting them. Yeah. And it seems like one thing that I was thinking about is your emphasis on love um, and care, mm -hmm. I think was, it is something that's very healing for me in your teaching. And, um, and this particular person is very, very highly intelligent, like genius level intelligence. And, um, and I think, and had a, you know, difficult history background him, himself. And, um, and I think maybe some emphasis, I don't know if you emphasize that because of the Zen tradition, but it's not always emphasized. And it seems like with, some level of understanding without the love, the heart can get really weird. I don't know. Yes, yes I agree. Very much so. Thank you, Yona. Ilan. Um, I was um, noticing that the stages of uh, dependent arising are seem to be echoed in other parts of, um, you know, like uh, the seven factors of awakening and even like uh, Anapanasati. And I'm wondering, um, is one of those original? Like, um, and the others were maybe derived from, from that, which was maybe more of like the actual experience of the Buddha's awakening? Um, I'll answer it from, from where I understand it. And then uh, I'm gonna ask Gil if he can tell me more about the uh, scholastic side of it. Um, so um, the way I see it is that none of those are particularly um, uh, real in a certain way. They're, they're the experiences that we have, they kind of have a, um, an energetic uh, refining, like when we enter medita a meditative state, it just gets refined, refined, refined until, um, you know, we're able to see and we can let go. And there's different ways of looking at it. And um, the benefits of looking at it from these different points of view, from Anapanasati, from um, some of our methods in, 
into connect with those aspects. They're not so much that this is the definite way that that the human mind works. You know, we don't have these these divisions between between what's going on. It's much more fluid than that. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I think that that um, that I sort of started hinting at in my talk was um, that some of it is their filters through which to look at our experience. Um, because we're used to looking at things, you know, by what we know, right? And and so when we look at a different filter, it's like, oh, oh, I'm seeing this whole side of myself that that I was just missing over and over again. And in practice, I've definitely found that, you know, like I spend a month um, uh, in daily life just focusing on the hindrances in daily life. I would spend a month on each hindrance. And uh it really surprised me. It was just every day was a new surprise of what was happening in my mind, you know, because I was looking through that filter, you know, through the filter of desire this week, you know, the filter of aversion this week. It was quite, quite a, um, quite, quite a shining a spotlight, um, you know, on, on my mind. Wow. That sounds like a great practice. Thank you. And Gil, do you know anything? Anything you can add about the the you know initial writings? Well, the initial writings or the composition of these texts or composition of these lists uh, all had its uh, origin in uh, people's meditation experience, and so that's the origin. And so I think what Azinez said. Um, these are all, uh, a lot of these lists are just are partly different perspectives on the same thing, different angles looking at the same things. And yes, like the seven factors of awakening contain some of the same steps as the, as the liberative dependent arising. And um, they're just looking at it from a different point of view. So, um, so but in terms of which list is early or late or first, and the Buddha taught for 45 years, so. It was a lot of years to try to say things a little differently each time. And they didn't have an audio dharma to record it all, so. (laughs) Yanli. So my question is about the list, too, in a way. I keep feeling there's one step missing the list, which is uh, you you also mentioned um, uh, after samadhi um, or after the practice develops, um, we get to meet with unfinished pain. And there's a lot of pain to go through in the body to, yeah, that's not mentioned. anywhere it just feels like happiness samadhi and then you get liberated (laughs) so like there's one step missing like at least for me and i wonder whether in the sutta or teaching anywhere that is mentioned or i don't know (laughs) not not maybe in the clarity you want you have to remember that um you know the the center of what the Buddha is talking about, he says, there's a quote where he says, I teach one thing, uh, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. So there's, a, you know, there's over and over again, there's an emphasis in recognizing suffering, understanding suffering and liberation is often described 
uh, in as an understanding of suffering in a deep way. And then once we are the initial liberation, then it's just a deeper and deeper understanding of suffering as you go along. But um, but it isn't just you know only all about suffering, but that's kind of like the main purpose. It keeps the spiritual life very simple and uh, and kind of clean when it's just a matter of ending suffering. It's pretty fantastic. So that's kind of on one hand the emphasis. On the other hand, as we do the practice. Uh, it's helpful to not only focus on the suffering, it can wear us down. And to learn how to hold the suffering um, in, um, in beneficial ways, you know, to hold it with open awareness, to open, hold it with kindness, to hold it in a field of joy or happiness, or to, to hold it with concentra concentrated uh, samadhi mind, or all these things. And I think part of the reason why these lists are are so, um, uh, you know, were composed kind of to be simple, streamlined, and memorable for people. And uh, I suspect that people in the ancient world didn't think there was a linear path from, you know, that just, you know, just, you just, you're told what the 12 steps are, you just take 12 steps and then you're done, done. and it's, you know, so easy. Um, but it's just that's a streamlined for the purposes of you know of clear understanding, and when in fact it's uh, I think that uh, most human beings are not so you know following you know the steps by the numbers they're they're what weaving in and out and up and down and, and at any point along the way new suffering can appear and you know and we're doing the practice and then we're we have joy and because we have joy. The joy has lifted a certain kind of conceptual overlay we have over our experience that's been holding down certain suffering. And so the joy, just like with joy, then follows all this, like, wow, I, boy, am I having a hard time. And that settles down, and then there's tranquility. But the tranquility has lift up, lifted the lid from another part of our life. And in that space of the tranquility, there's a whole other thing that we have to deal with for a while. And we have to kind of find our bearings and deal with that. And we're not going backwards because if we get agitated after the tranquility, it means that tranquility opened all the stuff to work with. And then we get happy after a while, but that takes, takes another lid off the, another fire. <laughs> and so, so it can be, you know, any point along the way. So if you do the Buddhist path, uh, you, should, you know, you should always be ready to suffer. Ever ready. But hopefully the way you're ready is, um, is with a light touch, with a certain faith and inspiration and understanding of the path and that it's valuable to do so. And, and uh, maybe even with a you know, smile, like, oh, I guess this is the on-ramp to the freeway. I didn't realize I got off. Now I'm, at least now I know the way back on. Thank you. Thank you. April. April. Well, I'm thinking uh, about um, eliminating dukkha through letting go of obstacles, hatred, hatred, greed, and delusion that get in our way. And underneath this is uh, is uh, some, I don't know, Buddha nature. <laughs> 
and so there there's a there seems to be uh, an, an assumption that that Buddha nature is peaceful, there's goodness and I don't know what words to describe it, but there's an inherent uh, uh, sense of well-being behind what we set up through our constructed self that gets in the way. And uh, in my understanding, Buddha nature uh, accurately, or can you elaborate a little bit on what happens when you get rid of the obstacles? <laughs> What's the, what is the nature of Buddha nature? <laughs> uh. <laughs> I know it's indescribable, you know, it's through metaphors and stories and such, but there seems to be an assumption that it basically it's a sort of an unconditioned sense of uh, well-being and uh, you know positive regard and that our constructed self or little ego we can only feel okay if we respond in certain ways if we get past that through the elimination of these obstacles there, there's a sense of inner just inner contentment, inner well-being connected to maybe the universe and each other. You know, the experience of freedom, you know, it's like, um, like if, I, if you'd never had, um, like I used to example an orange before and I said, okay, this is what an orange is like. You know, you you couldn't really get it, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's you know it, anything I said wouldn't tell you the taste of it. Right. You yep. know, so you're asking, what's the taste of freedom? Right. You know, so so the closer we can come to it is, think about a moment when you're not wanting anything, you're not uh, pushing anything away, and you're really present right where you are, not resisting. And there's a really deep sense of, of peace there. And, uh, and if you've had a moment like that, um, you can sort of, you know, have a hint of what freedom is like. That's good. <laughs> what do you say, Gil? <laughs> well, some of the terms, some of the, some, you know, there's this idea that, uh, if someone frames the conversation around certain kind of uh, concepts uh, yeah. and everyone agrees to go along with those concepts, then it's hopeless. And so you brought in the idea of Buddha nature, which is a Mahayana Buddhist idea, uh -huh. but not a Theravada Buddhist idea. So you should really ask the Mahayanists because that's, uh, it belongs to a whole different world of religion. The Theravada tends to prefer simplicity and uh, uh, prefers non-metaphysical or non-absolute statements. And um, and uh, this, you know, one of the most wonderful things is to become free of suffering. It's kind of like having a finally being able to get a glass of clear, pure water that has no sediment, no gunk in it, no anything. It's just pure water, and it's just so good. Mm -hmm. So to be free of suffering. And then what that does, that freedom of suffering, is uh, then there's no clinging, obstructing who you are. And, uh, and rather than having some idea that 
who you are, who everybody's supposed to be, this have the same wonderful qualities when they're enlightened. I think that it's, let's find out who you are when you are. Let's find out who you are when you're enlightened. <laughs> and it's possible that your April nature turns out that in the heart of your heart, what makes you most happy and what will inspire so many of us is it turns out you're, you're a hermit. <laughs> <laughs> I see. And uh, that's, that, that's just what makes you so happy and feel like connected and, and alive <laughs> in a wonderful way. And people will come and sit at your feet because you're such a happy hermit. <laughs> you know, but you think, that, you think that what the goal should be to be a social activist. And you, know, you don't want to do this path unless you can get a guarantee that by doing it, you're going to be out there saving the world, you know. But maybe that's not your nature. And, it, and who knows what your nature, maybe your nature is to be out there in the world. And, and so, so, so rather than specifying what it's supposed to look like, uh, I think that this was very generous tradition just says, you know, let's find out what it is for you. And let's not limit you to what it has to be by some ideals. Is that okay, answer? I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you both. Thank you both. So, Leo. So, um, I, I might have had a little bit of an aha moment based on some of the things that Ines was saying during the past hour. Um, as you both know, my, my predominant meditation experience when I'm practicing is my physical pain. And I've, and basically 99% of my practice consists of being with my physical pain. And you know, that, that's, that's my object all the time. And it, I, I always assumed that it's because my physical pain is so large and I do have a legitimate physical condition that while well, of course, my entire experience would be physical pain. But then based on what Ines was saying over the past hour, I'm thinking, is there an element of, you know, my physical pain being like the new car that, you know, when you're in the market for, you start to see new cars everywhere. Um, and if that is indeed the case, is there a way, do you have any suggestions in terms of ways to reorient that focus, because frankly, I, I'm getting pretty <laughs> sick and tired <laughs> of this physical pain practice that, that I've been doing for like the past five years. Great, great question. And it's a delicate question to answer because pain is such a, you know, such a difficult thing and so deeply connected to all kinds of aspects of who we are and, and you don't want to help people say something that helps people feel worse about themselves. Um, but pain, pain is difficult to be with. And I think you're right that sometimes there's a select, selectivity bias for some people to zero in and focus on their pain. Uh, fear, fear is a good motivator for that. And, uh, and the fear just makes the pain like the most important thing because we're just afraid of something. And, and, um, 
And I've certainly had in my life uh, things that both pain, but also other things that weren't painful, but gave birth to fear. And then, you know, had fear came along with it. And that was a, that caused me to focus on it all the time in a way that was out of proportion to what the issue was. So it might be possible for you to lose some of your interest. Um, you know, have, have interest that comes out of care for yourself. So you're not ignoring it and, and thereby maybe injuring yourself more. But, um, but uh, maybe there are, pay attention to it just enough. And maybe it's interesting to shift your focus to something else that might be beneficial, might actually help the pain. I've known people who have intense pain and they found that uh, the thing that really helped them was to find some place in their body where there was pleasure and to really avoid the pain and, and focus on the pleasure and let that grow and develop. I've known other people, like I've done this sometimes where I was in pain and I used concentration. I just really got concentrated in my breathing and, uh, and I could feel like I just kind of, like this a practice body I was talking about, you know, the practice body kind of, kind of, kind of lifted out of the pain. And that can be a little bit of an attachment to do so. And it can be a little bit of a bypass, but um, you know, the Buddha himself said that when he was old, I think I quoted it when he was old, that um, he had a lot of pain. And the only time he had some relief because there wasn't uh, pain medication back then was when he was in meditation. So it might be interesting for you to, to uh, look around and see where the joy is and the happiness is and the inspiration is or the pleasure is and see if the different focus might shift and change your relationship, even change your relationship to the pain. Sometimes pain relaxes when it's not the focus of attention. I've, 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 I, many times I've focused on my pain in meditation one of my one of the little traps for me was um, uh, expecting that I would see it go away, and I'd be hovering like a cat at a mouse door, just staying right there, you know, waiting for it to go away. And then um, it almost never went away when I was watching it. And then I'd go to lunch, and I'd come back from lunch, and lo and behold, it's gone. Where did it go? I missed it. I missed its departure. Um, so, so it's so it's possible to be, you know too much focused on this. And, um, but as I said in the beginning, I feel it's a little delicate to say all this and it's, it's so conditional on your, what's going on for you and what works for you. I, I think there seems to be, or at least my impression is that there's a Vipassana instruction that says work with whatever is predominant. Right. But sounds like you're saying maybe sometimes it's skillful to actually go out of my way to shift away from what's, predominant and find something else and make that something else potentially predominant. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, you, 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 the Vipassana teachings are kind of a unique invention that are useful for many people. But for the Buddha, the, his, uh, you see over and over again the suttas that um, uh, his orientation about how to decide these things, it's always um, uh, that which is beneficial or wholesome, that which is skillful, and you avoid that which is not wholesome. So, so in terms of where you bring your attention, bring your attention to uh, what works for you. And um, generally it works to pay attention to what's the predominant thing. And then there's no struggle with the predominant thing. 
but with pain, it's completely reasonable to um, to realize, you know, this isn't, uh, maybe this isn't as beneficial as some other things could be. So let me experiment with some other focuses of attention. And if I do that, these others for a while, maybe I'll it'd be, it'd be a whole different way of coming back to the pain um, later with a more beneficial way of being with the pain. So I do what works, not what's compelling. Thank you. So I think that, um, yeah, we've been here an hour now. So I think it's time to stop. And uh, thank you all very much. And um, we'll have a quiet sitting this evening. And those of you who it's, for whom it's evening. And uh, we'll continue tomorrow for the next day, half day. And, and um, one way of thinking about the retreat, just like with enlightenment, that um, this, uh, this, this retreat is not really about the practice. You, you thought you were practicing, but you were just preparing to practice. And your practice really starts at 12 o'clock tomorrow, at noon tomorrow, when we close the, this preparatory retreat. So, um, and I love doing it with you, practicing together. Let's do it for a long time. Um, and if you don't mind, I did have a couple of announcements we meant to announce earlier. Um, so, um, please check the schedule tomorrow because it changes. Uh, one thing that's that's different is we have a period for center cleaning. Um, we're replicating what we do at a residential retreat, where uh, everybody together cleans the center, which is particularly sweet to do that. And so we'll all be cleaning the place where each of us sat. And um, so, and also um, tomorrow, make sure you come to the 9.30 sit. Uh, we're going to have, uh, Gil's going to do a Dharmet, and then we'll have some announcements. So please come to that one. And uh, so that's, that's it. So thank you. <laughs>